1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we bring you a unique perspective on the events shaping the world. The art of origami might seem much more beautiful than useful, but there's an explosion of interest in using origami's principles for all manner of new technologies and products. At an origami in science meeting, I was welcomed into the fold. And our obituaries editor looks into the life of master accordionist Marcella Zola and shares a few thoughts on how lives can be celebrated in writing. But first... Yesterday, America's Senate issued a full-throated rebuke of President Trump's intent to draw down troops in Syria and Afghanistan. They voted overwhelmingly to advance legislation introduced by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, urging the United States to keep forces in place. Mr. McConnell blamed America's withdrawal from Iraq for the rise of Islamic State.
2: It's understandable that as we get farther from November, the, uh, from September the 11th, many would grow tired of our military efforts a long way from home. But as decisions from the Obama administration have made painfully clear... Leaving too abruptly carries its own grave risk.
1: His proposal comes after a week in which progress appears to have been made in peace talks between American officials and the Taliban, the insurgent group that sorely wants those troops out of Afghanistan. On Monday, the man leading the talks from the U.S. side, Zalmey Khalilzad, told journalists a preliminary framework for a deal had been hashed out. For some people, the announcement was a sign that America is rushing to get out of Afghanistan, For others, though, this was a thrilling moment. After more than 17 years of war, a way toward peace seemed to be emerging. Last summer, Afghanistan and the world got a glimpse of what might be possible when the Taliban unexpectedly held to a three-day ceasefire. People celebrated in the streets. But this latest progress might have come more from the shift in the Trump administration's policies than the Taliban's.
3: What has changed the, the picture now is the change here in Washington. The U.S. is clearly intent on uh, ending its military involvement in Afghanistan, and therefore it's now willing to make concessions to the Taliban, both in terms of the process of how you get to a deal and probably the substance of an ultimate deal that it wasn't willing to make before.
1: Laurel Miller is the director of the Asia program at the think tank, the International Crisis Group.
3: The Taliban top priority is the removal of foreign forces from Afghan soil. Their second priority is much more vaguely stated, and that is an Islamic form of government. They say they're not seeking a monopoly on power, they're not seeking to return to the emirate regime, the Islamic emirate that they had in the 1990s, uh, but they say they, they are seeking an Islamic form of government.
1: Set against that are America's goals, which indicate that a mutually agreeable deal is possible.
3: What the United States wants now is, number one, to exit from Afghanistan, militarily at least, and number two, wants to be able to be sure that its counterterrorism concerns will be addressed in some fashion. Whether that can be addressed simply through some assurances from the Taliban, whether it means needing to leave behind some forces that have counterterrorism capabilities is uncertain. Um, I doubt that there's even a clear U.S. policy on this position at the moment.
1: The overall U.S. policy may not be clear, but President Trump's position is. He wants America out of Afghanistan. Earlier this year, he expressed his frustration with the complex battle against the Taliban and other militant groups that operate there.
4: So Taliban is our enemy. ISIS is our enemy. We have an area that I brought up with our generals four or five weeks ago, where Taliban is here, ISIS is here, and they're fighting each other. I said, why don't you let them fight? Why are we getting in the middle of it? I said, let them fight. They're both our enemies. Let them fight. Sir, we want to do it. They go in and and they end up fighting both of them. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen.
1: (coughs) But even if America and the Taliban could reach an agreement, some think the price of the concessions made to the militants would be too high. (inaudible) (inaudible) Afghanistan's (inaudible) president, Ashraf Ghani, does not seem on board with the plan. He addressed the nation on television earlier this week, assuring Afghans that their rights would not be compromised in the name of negotiation with the Taliban. And then there are the people in Washington who think a hasty American withdrawal could have disastrous consequences.
4: Donald Trump has made contradictory promises. He says he wants to get out of America's useless and expensive and bloody wars. At the same time, he says he wants to confront radical Islam and he wants to take on the Iranians and roll them back. So uh, those three objectives are not necessarily... Uh, In accordance...
1: Anton LaGuardia is deputy foreign editor at The Economist. He's often reported from Afghanistan during the war there.
4: And it seems that over time, uh, his instinct to get out has predominated over his other two desires. And that runs against much of the American foreign policy establishment that is worried that America under Donald Trump is retreating from the world, that it is not... um, living up to its commitment to its allies and that will make for a much more dangerous world in which America's foes advance, be that China or Russia or indeed radical Islamic groups.
1: And yesterday we heard about that bill in the Senate urging the American administration not to rush for the door, though it's not clear how much sway that's going to have. What do you think would happen if America were to withdraw from Afghanistan?
4: Well, the war has been long and difficult and it's reached a stalemate. Uh, in which the government controls, depending on how you measure it, maybe half the country. And the Taliban control, you know, a chunk of it and the rest of it is sort of contested. And has been extremely bloody and the American army has said that the Afghan army is uh, sustaining casualties that are unsustainable in the long term. Um, but Kabul is still held by the government. Uh, there's still a government in place backed by the Americans. Uh, so the debate is what to do. In the early part of Donald Trump's term, he was convinced to increase American forces. He now is want, evidently wants to draw them down. And the worry is, will that leave a vacuum? Will it leave a vacuum, first of all, for the Taliban to come back to power? Second, for other groups to come back, such as the Islamic State, which also has a presence in Afghanistan? And will there be a return to the civil war that gave rise to the radicalism and allowed al-Qaeda to implant itself in the first place? So the fear is that this is this framework agreement is not really a peace agreement, is really a fig leaf for the Americans to get out too quickly. Insurgencies have to end in part through politics.
1: So with all that in mind, what's the best way out of this? What should President Trump do? Uh, what should Ashraf Ghani do? What should the Taliban do?
4: I think it's right to have opened a dialogue with the Taliban. Uh, you have to talk to them. Politics has to be part of this. Um, I think that it is wrong if it is happening to sideline the Afghan government because that plays into the Taliban view that this is a puppet of the Americans, whereas actually it's been elected and people have gone to vote and indeed have risked their lives to cast their ballots uh, to choose the politicians uh, uh, that that run them, imperfect as they may be. Um, And I think the the important thing is having reached a framework agreement – it is important the Americans now hold a line that says, Taliban, you need to talk to the Afghan government. This has to be an inter-Afghan process, number one. And number two, we have to get to a ceasefire to stop shooting. Uh, and we saw the glint of that hope in the summer last year when there was a three-day ceasefire. And there were extraordinary scenes of the Taliban coming into town, uh, embracing gun, you know, gunmen embracing soldiers. Uh, the people were delighted to see that. Uh, And I think they probably need to show that they're actually willing to stop fighting and they're not simply waiting for the Americans to go away and take power and return to the situation as we had it before, except with a promise that they've made that they will not allow groups such as al-Qaeda to come back.
1: Thanks a lot, Anton. You're welcome. Recently, I went to Oxford to go to a conference that I'd heard loads about, and it was on the practice of origami.
4: So origami is about these sharp creases and little triangles and little squares and creating shapes, create figures and the shape of animals and such things from sheets of paper.
1: Sergio Pellegrino has been involved in this origami world for years, but not in the way you might think. He hasn't come here to fold paper animals. He's come to give a talk on how origami can be used in space.
4: Another way of looking at it, it's a way of making the material disappear, fold back to back back on itself and uh, become smaller.
1: See, Dr. Pellegrino teaches aeronautics at Caltech, and this conference is all about how the ideas of origami can be put to much wider use. Those folds are showing up in a staggering array of things. Chairs
0: that collapse flat
3: this piece of furniture for children so that they can actually change it into different shapes. Methods for cleaning up the debris in space.
0: Medical devices. Adult diapers.
3: Fashion in the fashion world.
0: It's a very nice desk.
3: Lamps. Temporary shelters for the homeless. Architecture particularly in earthquake-prone areas.
0: That is a combination of origami and freight locomotives, two things you would not usually put together.
1: As a science reporter, I'd heard that ideas from origami were being put to new uses, but I had never imagined this diversity. Take Larry Howell from Brigham Young University. He and his students have developed an origami police shield. Folded up, it's sort of U-shaped and would fit in the back of a car.
2: Today's
0: objective was to see if it worked, if it actually stops bullets.
1: In a video from the university, Dr. Howell shows that it pops up to provide cover for up to three people.
0: It was exciting to see that it did stop the bullets.
1: Wandering around this conference, I keep noticing that conversations pause and hands dart into pockets and fetch little square sheets of paper. And then this furiously fast folding. These people are making a point, both geometrically and rhetorically, because all of this stuff does come back to those pieces of paper. A lot of the early push came from science-minded people who also did origami and who started to explore the mathematics folded up in their creations. None of those math-minded folks is more renowned, though, than Robert Lang.
0: It's just folding paper, but the really unique thing you get from origami is a lot of moving parts— even hundreds of moving parts that move in different directions, but they're doing so in a synchronized way. Dr.
1: Lang used to be a laser expert at NASA. For me, that was exciting enough. I used to be a laser physicist. Oh. About 100 billion years ago. Okay, who, uh, who and where? It's... Uh, well. But in this crowd, it's his expertise in origami mathematics that gets him the rock star treatment. What he and others have discovered is not just a way of making gizmos smaller but a powerful way of simplifying the most complicated ones.
0: Most origami mechanisms are, there are so many connections that it shouldn't be possible for it to move. And yet, the angles and dimensions of origami mechanisms are such that they do all move together. For a long time, not many people took origami
1: or origamists very seriously. It was written off as either a useless pastime or, well, kid stuff. That all changed seven years ago when America's National Science Foundation started funding projects that used origami to solve scientific problems. The program didn't just bring in money, Dr. Howell says. The second
0: thing it did is actually add credibility that you could do it, and that it was a legitimate you know, academic exercise. It was kind of like throwing gasoline on the match that was there.
1: But as all those different uses have come about, Dr. Lang says he's seeing the limits of the origami mathematics.
0: One of the things we're working on is mechanisms of folding when you want to use origami-inspired patterns, but you need to make them from materials whose thickness can't be ignored.
1: Take that bulletproof shield. Twelve layers of Kevlar don't necessarily fold flat. For uses like this, the existing mathematics established by Dr. Lang and others doesn't apply. But... He told me he has some ideas.
0: Origami is pointing us to new problems for which the answers are not obvious in the underlying math, so they are requiring us to solve new problems in mathematics in order to gain an understanding of a phenomenon that we see in the world of folding but don't yet have a mathematical description of it.
1: I'm already amazed at how far this field has come, but that's where it will really take off even more, It's not only about figuring out how the mathematics of folding can be used in satellites and bulletproof shields. It's also discovering the equations describing real-life useful folded stuff, which then informs how you make better useful folded stuff. See, folding and folding, back and forth, back and forth, and it gets bigger. If you're liking the intelligence, try The Economist Asks, our interview show. On this week's episode, Anne McElvoy asks New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern about the economics of well-being and how she feels about being dubbed the anti-Trump.
2: I don't spend a, a lot of time and on comparisons or you know characterising myself relative to others in, in New Zealand. You know, but where, I mean, I'm,
3: I'm, not, I'm not just sort of niggling on to be a... You know. Oh no, I irksome but it it, it just strikes me interviewing a lot of sort of liberally minded leaders often here at at doubles and, and beyond that there was a period when it was felt that they should come into the room and tell you that they were against trump and trumpism and now are perhaps trying to find other ways to project their own values without clashing
1: the economist asks is out every thursday
2: It's quite a difficult procedure to decide who to write about because there are so many people coming in every week, if you like, so many candidates. But when I hit on the right one, it's as if a bell goes off in my head.
1: Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor.
2: It's always the story. It's not the person, you know, whether they've done some great or noble deed or some villainous deed. Often it's people who are not particularly well-known But I just love what they've done in their lives. I feel that the real purpose of an obituary ought to be to capture the soul of somebody. It's not to go through the life just saying what they did from school to marriage to career to death. It is actually to get in touch with that principle within them that makes. makes them who they are.
1: Among those who Anne's written about recently was a master of an instrument that some people consider discordant and vulgar.
2: I'd never thought very much about the accordion before. I'd always been uh, rather annoyed if I heard someone playing it in the street. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what do they want from me? But I'd also had another side of me that somewhat liked the accordion I heard as a background to France. I lived in France for a couple of years. There's a wonderful mood about it that takes me right back. Well, Marcel Azola was a very famous French accordionist, but as is often the way we don't popularly know the names of accordionists because they tend to play in the background. He'd gradually worked his way up from a background as the son of an Italian-French immigrant in an area of Paris where accordions were very important and where they were still made and where there were plenty of Italians still playing them. And he gradually worked his way up through the bars and uh, all the various nightclubs and so on, the sort of places where you'd imagine accordions being played spent a lot of time in jazz nightclubs. He does have a technique when you hear him compared with other players. That's very gentle, it's rather introspective, as if he's dreaming when he's playing. And he obviously adores this instrument when you actually see him play it. He's half smiling a lot of the time and I think it's rather infectious and that was why he became as popular as he did, I'm sure. His infectiousness certainly led him to being taken on by the great stars. He collaborated with Edith
0: Piaf.
2: He played with Stefan Grappelli. He played for Django Reinhardt. And he also worked with the great Belgian chansonnier,
0: Jacques Plein.
2: There was one number on the album they were working on, which was called Vézoul. It's particularly about a man roving from one city to another and feeling that he can never go back to Paris and will never go back to Paris because it's full of accordions and he can't stand accordions. And it was as if Azola was electrified by this insult to his instrument. He goes off with such an amazing Riot of notes.
1: <laughs>
2: Extraordinary, wild, extravagance of accordion playing. <laughs> and Brel was really quite astonished by this. And as it went on, he just said, Chauf, Marcel, show. <laughs> Take it away, heat it up. There isn't really a proper translation. He was so taken by it, he just wanted him to get even hotter and even wilder. He did an enormous amount for the accordion, first academically. He taught at the National Music School in Paris, but he also had links to the conservatoire, and he was very keen that the accordion was accepted there as a proper course, as a proper instrument that you could study. And he managed to get that accepted. So that was an enormous moment for him. And also he built up an extraordinary collection of accordions, which you can see online. He gives you a virtual tour of this astounding collection of very beautiful instruments there, inlaid with gold and copper and mother of pearl and they're as lovely as they can be. But I felt actually as he was going round them and showing what he loved that he had as great an affection for ones that he'd just been given on the street because he likes the popular aspect of them as well as what he would think of as the noble aspect. I think since writing about Azolla, I feel very much softer and kinder towards the accordion in all its aspects and in all its places. And I think now when I hear them being played outside Charing Cross Station or wherever it may be, maybe I'll put a few coins in the hat.
1: Anne Rowe on Marcel Azzola, who's died age 91. that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend.